0: You have to improvise, and when Oleg Gordievsky was smuggled out of Moscow and across the Finnish border in the mid-1980s, there were sniffer dogs at the border. And what happens? The wife of the UK intelligence officer, who was travelling with them, with their baby, managed to change the nappy of the baby on the boot, where the dog was beginning to sniff around, where Gordievsky was hiding. And the dirty nappy fell on the floor and uh, slightly distracted the dog. Perfect. So that's what you need to do. That is what you call
1: deception. Hello and welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton and with my old friend James Jackson, we're going to talk about moments from history that tell us who we are, how we got here and perhaps where we are heading. And yes, it's often violent and generally quite
2: bloody. An example of the use of camouflage appears in Shakespeare's Macbeth, where Malcolm bids his men to carry branches from Burnham Wood in their approach to Dunsinane. As they approach the wood, Seward asks the army, What wood is this before us? To which Mentieth replies, The wood of Burnham. So Malcolm responds, Let every soldier hew him down a bough and bear it before him. Thereby shall we shadow the numbers of our host and make discovery heir in report of us. The soldiers reply, it shall be done. Later, the advance is spotted by a lookout who reports to Macbeth. Gracious, my lord, I should report that which I say I saw, but know not how to do it. Macbeth says, well, say, sir, the messenger replies. As I did stand my watch upon the hill, I looked towards Burnham and anon methought the wood began to move. Macbeth says, liar and slave. The messenger replies, let me endure your wrath if it be not so. Within this three mile, may you see it coming, I say, a moving grove.
1: Today, we're going to talk about two subjects in one episode because they have a close connection with each other when we consider warfare. And remember, war is a mere continuation of politics. By another means. The definition of camouflage is any means of disguise or evasion, and that of deception is to trap or overcome with trickery. Sun Tzu, the 5th century BC Chinese general and strategist, was good on this subject. In The Art of War, he gives us the general statement that all warfare is based on deception, and more specific advice to commanders such as appear strong when weak and weak when strong. Renaissance enthusiasts like to cite Machiavelli, who devotes a whole chapter on the subtle art of lying in his book, The Prince. We will discuss how camouflage and deception have developed from ancient times to the present day, always acting as an essential fourth multiplier, allowing an opponent to evade, mislead, and surprise his prey. So, Jamie, let's start with camouflage. Even in nature, it has an important role. It all
0: starts with nature, Tom, because whether you're prey or predator, quite often you need to hide, you need to mislead, you need to make your opponent think that you're somewhere else and not about to pounce. So, it's always worth looking at nature, and that's really where humans got their cue from, where huntsmen got their cue from. So if you look at nature, whether it's the tiger, the zebra, look at the stripes of the zebra. Not only does it break up the outline, but it allows a herd of zebra to appear like a giant zebra, you know, it makes it harder for a pride of lionesses who are hunting them to get a bead on an individual, and particularly if they're running. So you can see how this works so well for those who are trying to protect themselves.
1: I've actually seen quite an entertaining picture of a First World War Uh, transport corps where they painted their mules with stripes to make them look like uh, zebras have you seen that
0: no i haven't yeah
1: it's a very great picture yeah and they were they were
0: making gun emplacements look like trucks in the second world war so it's it's an ongoing and so deception and camouflage are fused even at the level of nature
1: so you got you mentioned the zebra and the shark well, so many types of shark
0: are, are, are darker on their backs, so anyone looking down on them can't see them against the deeper ocean. And on their underbelly, they're lighter, so any fish or any other creature looking up uh, will only see the skies. It's evolution yeah, no and warning. it's important. No yeah.
1: warning at all. There's been quite a few programmes, actually, on telly recently about octopuses from the Greek. So what about them?
0: oh they're extraordinary I mean because they have a federated brain with different different limbs different arms uh, basically thinking for themselves they are extraordinary creatures they can change color they can change shape they use shells and rocks to cover themselves so so if there's a predator close no one can spot them they're just just amazing creatures that's camouflage but you get deception as well you get what are called sneaky fuckers uh, in nature he's been longing to say that there we go I'll say it again (laughs) sneaky fuckers but 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 uh, again you get deception used in so many aspects of nature whether it's the blue moth larvae pretending to be a red ant so it's carried into the red ant nest and eats all the red ant eggs it just gives off a fake pheromone basically a fake scent it's a sort of trojan horse really it is a complete trojan horse and you get it in other aspects of nature too you get small fish who wait until a female has laid eggs and then darts out and basically inseminates all the eggs we all know well, a few people well, like that <laughs> <don't we?
1: laughs> sorry lowering, yeah, lowering the tone you there.
0: really are um <laughs> then of course you get frogs who want to attract a mate so they're going to sit next to a bigger frog with a deeper deeper voice deeper tone and so all through nature you get this going on i think it's called kleptogamy uh, <laughs> which is a great which uh, is a great expression
1: sneaky fuckers easier to remember well it is a bit easier to say yeah so that's uh, so nature and obviously hunters uh, humans observed Uh, animals in the wild and uh, got some ideas from them and in early history uh, in the ancient world at the time of say Julius Caesar he was uh, particularly good at deploying certain camouflage tactics.
0: Yes 54 BC there he was cruising off the coast of Britain in boats that were painted Venetian blue and his sailors were dressed in blue as well in the belief that no one on shore would be able to spot them but most commanders, when they were operating in areas that, where they were fighting local populations, say, for example, in a jungle environment or desert environment, it was so much easier to blend in, to look like locals or simply not to be noticed.
1: Caesar must have been rather surprised when he finally landed on Britain and discovered most of the people there were painted blue
0: or in the pub.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And wouldn't fight at weekends. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so there you go. So yeah. so th- there's a long history of that. But as you move on into medieval times of course, there was no need for hiding. You know, there was a belief in display in chivalry, in plumage.
1: Yeah. And well because there was so much fog of war, there was it was so difficult to see what was going on anyway that you needed to have a certain amount of colour to to identify your own troops. We spoke of this in our podcast on hostages, the idea that
0: you were more likely to survive the more flamboyantly dressed you were because you showed your status and you could pay up a, a bigger ransom were you taken in battle. And so people needed to be seen, commanders needed to be seen,
1: And this evolved later on. I mean, the trooping of the colour is an is is an example of that, isn't it? They had to show who they were, you know, the soldiers, what sort of essentially what flags they had to respond to by trooping the the flags, the colours up and down them, and showing them, you know, this is who you're fighting for. When you know when all else goes wrong, you head for this, and you and you kept to formation. I mean, when the when the Brits were fighting, they kept to the traditional fighting square or fighting yeah. line. You can see that actually in Winston Churchill's description of battles, uh, Mal- Marlborough's battles uh, in the early seventeen hundreds. Um, w- you know whether it's Blenheim or Oudenarde. I mean, the, the, they're absolutely terrifying. The descriptions because the way to win was just to keep going forward in a straight line close, you know, shoulder to shoulder and to to withstand the barrages of musket fire and cannon fire.
0: And battles were at very close range. And not only that, not only did the commanders have to keep control, you had the fog of war, the real fog of war. You had gunpowder smoke
1: drifting everywhere, clouding the entire environment. So It, it was often a sort of slugfest until there was a moment where a brilliant commander could flank with the cavalry or something you know they literally had to face each other and, and sort of punch each other in the face yes and
0: because it was such close range because there was so, so much noise of battle so much was visual you had to be able to see the colors mm. you had to be able to try and hear a, a trumpet call a bugle call but so often that was impossible
1: did, so, uh, did countries choose their colors because they you know they chose a color and, and that was like oh well those are the french in blue those are the Brits in. Red and so on. Or was it... What was the reason for the different colours? I don't fucking know. I, look, I love it. I <laughs> yeah, get him, All right. Um,
0: but, but, uh, but... But clearly but, they but, did.
1: There were, kind, there were different sort of um, armies, countries, had sort of themes of colour, didn't they? Yes, they did.
0: The, the, and the Brits always stuck religiously to scarlet for a long time. And the French stuck religiously to blue. So it
1: made it easier in... French and English war games to know which side you were on. <laughs> yes. And this um, thing of black powder and smoke, I mean, that that's something that we can't necessarily uh, imagine that easily today. But the, the gunpowder they were using in those days was just... It created an absolute fog.
0: A complete fog, right up until the middle, of, really, of the 19th century. And you started getting smokeless ammunition, cartridge fed rifles later that century, and it so it cleared the battlefield. But uh, you know, at that stage, because things were so close, because battle was so confused, y- you did get a, a sort of remnant of native camouflage in various parts of the armed forces. I mean, you got the emergence of the rifles during the Seven Year War, the idea that people were green, that they would go forward and skirmish, and that they weren't necessarily in close order. They right. Were really so these are the, these
1: are these are soldiers who are in front of the line in the sort of grass, taking pot shots at the other side, and he, and, and bringing back intelligence.
0: And yes, stuff. and skirmishing, going forward, wrecking. This was developed by Robert Rogers. We mentioned him on our Special Forces podcast. Mm. But this idea that you you learnt from the natives because that's who you were fighting. I mean, of course, you were fighting the French as well, but you had to survive in this hostile environment, this far more fluid, 360-degree environment. And once you're in those sort of circumstances, you weren't fighting in a square. You weren't fighting uh, guarding the colours. You were absolutely out on your own.
1: But it must have irked the commanders and certain... Uh, you know, sort of aristocratic leaders or or leaders of these troops because they liked to see their men all sort of smartly lined up moving forward and they didn't want a few people sort of grubbing around in the bushes. Well, and that attitude
0: survived right up to the Second Boer War from late 1899. And that's when you start getting the appearance of camouflage of the understanding of camouflage, but it its potential... And the dangers posed by an enemy that believed in camouflage were still not fully understood. And it was absolutely the Boer War that crystallised that situation and those problems.
1: By the way, the high-end travel agent, Casanova and Lloyd, have three cabins on their private train, which is following in the footsteps of Sir Winston Churchill in South Africa. His dramatic capture and escape from the Burrs will be told by his grandson Sir Nicholas Soames over several days from the thirtieth of march to the fifth of April. Call Chris Wilmot Sitwell on UK O two O seven three eight four two three three two or you can email him on info at Casloyd that's I'll put these details in the show notes. Okay, well, let's talk about the Boer War. There was Boer War 1 and 2, but it's really the second Boer War, which starts in 1899, uh, that changes everything. This changes the attitude towards camouflage. Um, We're obviously going to talk about deception in a minute, and, and, and there is a part of camouflage that's deception and vice versa. But 1899... The Boer War, we've got things like smokeless ammunition.
0: You have smokeless ammunition. You have the Mauser rifle in the hands of the burghers, the Boer commandos, the the farmers who took to their horses.
1: What what were the Brits? What were they using? They were using
0: Lee-Enfields. They were using the the sort of mass-produced rifle of the day in Britain. That they had moved on from the uh, Henry Martini rifle that you saw in the Zulu Wars, and it's the first time that the Brits are moving away from wearing scarlet. Khaki came in; it was officially known as drab, and there suddenly became a craze for khaki. There were music hall songs about khaki, the general election in 1900. In oh, yeah, the Britain, khaki election. The khaki election. Yeah. It, it became the thing. And it, it was trialled in Sudan. It had been seen
1: in India. Um, y- yes, in, that's for 1848, northwest frontier. The locals who were auxiliary troops, they would be in their local costumes, and that worked very well both for, for camouflage and also for the heat.
0: Yes, and so you, you started to get this understanding that with longer-range rifles, better accuracy, more mobility and the, the, the people they were fighting against, that simply standing in ranks, in serried ranks, wearing scarlet was not going to work. So you, you got
1: this move towards khaki. When the Brits went out to... South Africa to start start this campaign. They were dressed in still in scarlet, and they were led by British generals who believed in close order and really hadn't fought large-scale battles for decades.
0: Well, that complete
1: arse, uh, Sir Redvers Buller, known as Reverse Buller, I mean, he, he never won anything, basically. He did have a Victoria Cross. He? He,
0: he did, but he was the most hopeless general, I think, that we've ever put in the field. he, he, he It was just disgraceful. But because he was popular back home, the politicians couldn't remove him. Mm. So it, it was disaster after disaster. There were battles like Colenso... There, there were battles like Kop where General Warren were in charge. Uh, but all those Victorian generals, they had experience of colonial wars, of fighting natives with spears, and they had never come across this dedicated fighting group of Boers and mobile commandos. And for the first time, you came across barbed wire, trenches, hidden troops, because the burghers, what they tended to do, they fired from cover, and then they'd just slip away. And the Brits would be badly mauled, be marching up. There was a general called General Hart. And in one battle, he had his men marching in close order. And they were still using 14-year-old drummer boys and 14-year-old buglers to marshal the troops and direct the troops.
1: They were a sitting duck.
0: They were absolutely sitting ducks, and the, the whole thing was catastrophic. We were suffering terrible casualties. I mean, at Colenso, I think the, the British lost 1,000 casualties. The, the, the Boers lost eight, eight men killed.
1: Yeah, that's appalling. General Buller sent a memorandum to his officers that battles are not won by jack in a boxes but by resolute, enthusiastic men who keep on their feet so he clearly thought they should stand up and be shot.
0: It was all to do with morale, esprit de corps, the pride of the British army, and these regiments you know, had great traditions, but they were being repeatedly mauled by an enemy who were, A, were hidden, and B, far more mobile.
1: Well, I suppose he might have thought that if they were doing that, he could see where they were as well.
0: Well, and the Brits basically just kept to the railway lines so the Boers knew exactly from which direction the Brits were going to come. I mean, Redvers Buller never believed in flanking attacks, for example. I mean, he just didn't do it. He just believed in direct assault.
1: Two up and bags of smoke.
0: Yes, and he, he got it wrong time and time again. He, he was just totally hopeless.
1: Was he ever replaced, or did he stay the whole
0: He He stayed, but then what happened is that Lord Roberts came out, managed to march into the Orange Free State, took Pretoria eventually... Uh, relieved Mafeking and his army got to Pretoria and that was the moment the British thought we've won the war but then what happened is the Boers went guerrilla they went commando in a sense yeah. and each of their commanders were about 300 men strong and you got incredible commanders whether it was Louis Botha or Jan Smuts who led a commando into Cape Colony and, and almost got to Port Elizabeth you had Devet, uh, Christian Devet, who was an incredible guerrilla commander. And these guys they were leading, they knew they had lost the war, but they just went on fighting. So they were very committed.
1: Well also, they're in the country that they live in. They're not going to go anywhere else. So they've got, you know, their backs are to the wall, which we've talked about many times that makes you a much more formidable foe but also they were using these hit-and-run tactics. And they were brilliant
0: marksmen. I mean, yeah. there were
1: cases of British
0: officers being hit five or six times in the field. They were, they were
1: very good hit-and-run guerrillas. And, and the comparison of distance, I mean, you know, 50 years before muskets uh, it was no range beyond 50 feet would it be if you were lucky you could shoot someone at 50 feet. that's
0: right and suddenly you had smokeless ammunition you had cartridges you had magazine fed rifles and you were getting boers picking off british soldiers at 600 yards plus so you know it was it was very tough for the brits and kitchener went out there he took over as commander-in-chief once lord roberts had gone back to england and he started coming up with the tactics of burning farms. 30,000 farms were, were burned, Boer farms were burnt. So there was this scorched-earth policy Um the, the women and children were pushed off the veld into concentration camps, yeah. and 20,000 children died. This wasn't a policy of the Brits to kill them. It was just sheer ineptitude. No-one had ever
1: run camps it was like this com- before. Yeah, as a consequence.
0: That's right. And so you got powerful women like Emily Hobhouse going out, followed by a six-woman committee from England sent by Parliament to do a whitewash. But actually, they did a searing report on conditions in the camps that were then taken over by the civilian authorities and, and conditions much improved. But Kitchener had a very tough response. And in that sort of colonial way of the Brits at that time, they weren't going to be put down by a guerrilla force of Boers. So they built 8,000 block houses, mostly along the railway lines, and they used to do drives. I mean, spot the game-shooting connection. They used to use columns of British soldiers... Uh, increasingly, they were mounted. I mean, the Brits sent. And just fa- sort of
1: sweep their foe. Sweep their foe,
0: exactly. I mean, the Brits sent 500,000 horses out there and 300,000 of them died. They were bringing horses over from America. And actually, some of the cowboys who brought the horses over from America ended up joining the Boers and, and yeah.
1: fighting with them, with the Outlanders. I the think foreign... my, my great-grandfather was um, a vet. And he was Irish. He was a vet. And he spent quite a lot of his early life out there um, having to deal with and put down a lot of horses because so many were injured and sick. Oh, the horses had a terrible time. And, yeah. But you can
0: see that here was this sort of moth army dealing with mobile packs of roaming birds, and they, they weren't accustomed to it. A lot of them were sort of stuck in the blockhouses. But you started getting this this sort of idea that intelligence was needed, so you got intelligence officers attached. There was a very good intelligence officer called Major Aubrey Will Sampson, who was attached to uh, a chap called Benson, who was killed in the Battle of Gun Hill when Louis Botha's Boer commando caught up with this column of Brits and wiped them out. And there's this incredible description of Boers riding at the canter across one and a half miles, sweeping down towards the Brits who were running to, to try and take up a defensive position. So it was a new type of warfare, and what's so bizarre is that 15 years before the First World War, the Brits had got the concept of khaki, but they hadn't got the concept of how to fight running battles, how to fight in this sort of different environment with a a foe that thought outside the box, that was fighting an unconventional war.
1: Okay. Well, we'd better then move on to that next major conflict, which is the First World War. Yes,
0: and so much of that was foreshadowed by what happened in the Boer War, that you know the Brits during the Boer War were trying to use creeping barrages, they were trying to march towards entrenchments that were guarded by barbed wire. You actually had the Maxim gun in the Boer War. I mean, by the time that uh, Lord Roberts got to Pretoria, he had 76 Maxim guns with him. Whether the Brits knew how to deploy it is a different matter, but suddenly you're dropped into the First World War. And the big change then is really aerial observation. And just as in the late 19th century, smokeless ammunition changed the picture for troops, made them more vulnerable, so aerial observation in the Great War made them yet more vulnerable. You've got this third dimension in warfare, and it made it extremely dangerous for those down below.
1: So you've got, for instance, at the beginning of the war, the French still in their blue uniforms and blue caps.
0: Yes, but the French started to learn, and they they set up their camoufleurs, their camouflage unit, which started painting trucks, that started coming up with camouflage netting. The British started building hides, started camouflaging trench formations, trying to disguise the movement of troops. So it became important to make everything as drab as possible, that it couldn't be picked out. We spoke in the Bombs Away, the Air Warfare podcast about, you know, painting the Albert Memorial in London black, you know, making sure it didn't glisten. Well, you didn't want anything glistening or glinting
1: on the Western Front that could be picked up by an observer. Uh, But it wasn't a very large step between having people covering themselves up, camouflaging themselves, and somebody starting to think, well, we could use this to deceive our enemy as well. Oh, you got that across the the
0: front. I mean, you, you had fake trees, for example. People would go and saw down trees at night, whether in no man's land or just behind the trenches, and replace it with a hollow tree where a sniper could take aim on the enemy. So
1: you certainly got that. Well, and I think they also, didn't they... Um uh, they had papier-mâché heads to, to draw snipers' attention and then they could spot them and fire back at them.
0: Exactly. I mean, it made counterfire so much easier. Anything that could outwit the enemy, any, anything that could keep, keep your profile down and allow you
1: to sneak up on the enemy or stay away from them. So from the trenches, this idea of, of disguising the way people and objects looked then bled across into the Navy and Navy thinking, because they were having problems with ships being sunk by U-boats. Oh, it became a huge problem.
0: I mean, by the middle of 1917, you were losing 20 ships a week. I mean, there was one point where we were losing 50 or more ships a week, so something had to be done. Norman Wilkinson was critical to the invention of dazzle camouflage, the idea that you could break up the silhouette of a ship And that made it not only more difficult to see, but it made it more difficult for German U-boats to gauge distance, to gauge speed. So it was a brilliant concept, a brilliant idea.
1: And this is really in a time where U-boats are finding ships to sink really only visually they're not using there's no such thing as radar or wireless interception or anything like that
0: no and also they tended not to use torpedoes because torpedoes were unreliable and extremely expensive so u-boats tended to surface and use their deck gun to force a merchantman to stop get the men and officers off and then sink sink it using shells rather than torpedoes and so making it harder to gauge speed and distance or even to discern whether it's a warship or a merchantman.
1: Uh, And, well, this is where the whole combination of camouflage and deception start to merge because from that we we get the Q-ship. You do start getting the
0: Q-ship. I mean, dazzle camouflage, a bit like khaki in 1900, it became an absolute... Fad, it became the thing. By the end of the war, over 2,000 ships, warships, and merchantmen were disguised with dazzle camouflage, including the great passenger liners. But when it comes to Q ships, there had been a long history of disguising ships. Everyone had done it, you know, right back to the sort of 15th, 16th, 17th century. The French, the Spanish, and of course the Brits, and you know, the Royal Navy. Back in the early 17th century, uh, had HMS Kingfisher cruising the Mediterranean, pretending to be a merchant ship but actually a warship there to hunt uh, zebeks, to hunt the the sh- the, the the ships. The, yeah, the raiding ships of the corsairs. So, you know, Q ships had a very important role. They came in quite early in the war. The first success was sort of spring, summer 1915. Sometimes they operated with Royal Navy submarines, sometimes they worked alone. But they started taking quite a large toll on German submarines. And so Q-ships and also armed merchantmen, armed merchant ships that the Germans were using in both the First and Second World Wars, became increasingly important.
1: And they were, I suppose, relatively inexpensive because you didn't have to build a new... Battleship, or you—you or, or you just took an, an existing merchantman and and screwed on a few guns, and and away you went. And and they could operate on their own. So, it—were it, they crewed by navy personnel or by it, merchantmen? Oh, certainly the guns
0: would have been navy personnel, but quite often the uh, people on board were merchant seamen. So having an arm armor on it, having guns on it, just became sort of standard practice. But then, in the same way, the Queen Mary had guns put on her, uh, and the Queen Elizabeth had guns put on her. So yeah, so, well, she
1: was so fast that most U-boats couldn't catch her anyway.
0: Well, exactly. But but the point of the Q ship was to, to to be held out as a lure, as a dangle. And again, it is that old hunting thing that deception that holding, holding yourself out as something vulnerable, something to be caught, can be quite a useful strategy.
1: Yeah, and in fact it must also have meant that the merchant seamen in their ships must have felt less vulnerable by having some weaponry on board that they could respond with rather than just sitting there having a U-boat taking pot shots at them. I think so, and particularly if you weren't in convoy, you were incredibly vulnerable
0: to what was going on. And submarines were, as we know, a huge
1: menace in both wars. At the beginning, we talked about sharks and their blue or grey tummies, so they can't be seen by fish underneath. And that would be a similar idea with the RAF, or rather the Royal Flying Corps in the First World War, that they learnt to start painting the underside of their aircraft. Yes, and that continued into the
0: Second World War. If you look at reconnaissance marks of Spitfire, uh, their different shades of blue were extremely useful and if you're operating alone, trying to be invisible was incredibly important. You couldn't just use
1: speed. And often in wars, the opponent tries to destroy your aircraft or your men at the battlefront, whereas, in fact, you're better spent trying to destroy them in the factory. And certainly the Lancaster bombers that were built in the Second World War, the factories were quite quickly, I think, put underground uh, because they realised that if the uh, the Germans, the Nazis had the thought and discovered them, they could bomb them, and that would be a major problem for our programme of bombing Germany. Of course, camouflage and deception were important there too, not just putting them underground, but
0: actually getting artists to paint craters and make it look as though all those factories, certainly the Mosquito Factory, for example, near St Albans, that painting them... To, to look as though they had been bombed and created was very important,
1: a bit of old sort of de- destroyed um, wasteland
0: exactly and and again, there was always deception. I mean look at the way that during the second world War we fed back to the Germans that the v ones were overshooting, so that they were uh, altered and started falling short of London. so it's this constant battle, but i mean we'll we'll move on to deception, but it just shows how camouflage and deception uh, are so intertwined, you know, just like fake pipelines in the North African desert that looked as though the British hadn't built oil pipelines when, when they had. You know, disguise is critical uh, to military planning, military campaigns.
1: Very good. Well, we've, uh, we've moved across from camouflage into the area of deception, so we might as well focus on it, starting, like we did at the beginning, with the ancient world and various characters, myths and legends, some of them, who used deception to defeat their enemy. For instance, the Spartans.
0: The Spartans are fascinating because you're talking about such small numbers that being able to feint, F-E-I-N-T, and pretend to run and then turn on your enemy was critical to the way they fought because, of course, they all fought in phalanxes, they had their hoplite troops... And the idea was to make the solid front of the enemy break. And what better way to do that than pretend to run yourself so they'd run after you? But it took huge discipline to do.
1: Yes, um, it's famously the, the easiest way and the most casualties uh, come when a, when, a, when an army breaks and uh, are chased off the battlefield. That's when 90% of the casualties can happen sometimes.
0: Exactly. So ancient Greece was, was a, a good place to start if you're looking at deception, feint and camouflage in a sense. And you know, everyone knows the Homer story of the Iliad. Everyone knows about the... The Trojan horse and Odysseus and 40 men trying to get into uh, Troy, and that was a classic example of strategic deception.
1: And it was actually never even mentioned in the Iliad, in it was in the Odyssey. <laughs> <laughs> But, okay. but that's fine, that's fine.
0: Everyone... <laughs> <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> everyone no, Everyone always everyone, thinks everyone. that, but it, it, yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah, it okay. just grinds to a halt, doesn't it, Iliad? And, and then it's, it's okay. held... Everyone remembers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. And that is an example of strategic deception. So you have a very early example of that. It's not just a tactic. It's something that could be a war winner it's an example of you know what was adopted by other armies and other societies
1: over the centuries over the millennia yeah well by the sheer fact that Homer was writing it he might have it might not have happened but People were thinking about it, and in warfare, uh, even in the animal kingdom, some animals will use deception to get what they want, and this is just a good example of it.
0: Well, you look at the 4th century BC, and you've got uh, a Chinese general called Sun Bin who wanted his forces to look weaker. Classic Sun Tzu tactic, that you make your army look weaker. So what he did, he got his men to light 100,000 campfires, and over the following two days he got those numbers of campfires reduced. So by the third day, there were 30,000. So the opposing army, I think they were from Wei, uh, thought that he was suffering from multiple desertions, mass desertion. And so they attacked, and unfortunately attacked in a narrow pass and got massacred, as was their general.
1: And then, of course... A very famous, well-known general, again, Julius Caesar, he was very good at this sort of thing when he was fighting the Gauls in the Gallic Wars. He got one over Vercingetorix
0: by pretending that his forces were staying in one location when, in fact, he had moved the bulk of his army uh, downstream, downriver, and rebuilt a bridge, crossed, and managed to encircle the enemy. So every general tries to do that unless you're that arse Redvers Buller in the Boer War, um, who had no
1: strategic imagination whatsoever. Well, there's always been an arse like him on the other side, isn't it? You've got the, the, the clever general who's doing the deceiving and the one who's been deceived. Yes, it always helps if you're dealing with an absolute idiot. So push on into the Renaissance period in Europe, and we've got action in Malta.
0: Yes, we mentioned this in our podcast on Fort St. Elmo because the vast Turkish army turned its attention, having taken Fort St. Elmo, on Medina, the walled citadel seven miles north of the positions that the knights were defending. So the army marched north and the governor of Medina simply put women and children in Mauryan helmets, Spanish helmets, carrying pikes on the ramparts, fired his cannons, his two cannons early, to make it look as though he had huge quantities of powder and shot. And the Turks decided it wasn't worth attacking because they'd lost so many men already in their attack on Fort St. Elmo. It's trying to keep people out of your fort or trying to get into a fort. Deception is always extremely useful. And you roll on almost a 100 years to 1646, during the English Civil War, and there at Corfe Castle, there was Lady Mary Banks, who had 80 royalists with her, guarding her castle. For several years, she held out against the parliamentarians until a traitor in her midst said, oh, I'm going to go and get reinforcements, went out, and came back with a whole load of parliamentarian forces uh, disguised as royalists and they got into the castle so that again is a classic ruse and you're it always a getting that trojan
1: horse really
0: and wind on to the second world war and you get a raider like anders lassen in greece when he took salonica he was firing piat anti-tank rounds into the air pretending to be heavy artillery and driving around in fire engines making a hell of a racket trying to convince the German forces there the garrison that a British a large British force had arrived when of course it was just sort of basically 40 to 60 raiders.
1: Oh my god you have mentioned Anders Lassen when Sidney Smith coming on. <laughs> oh he, he'll appear later. Oh will He's <laughs> bound to have had all sorts of deceptive ruses uh, yeah ruses
0: completely so you can see throughout history the deception has been extremely important
1: I mean in the Boer War well yeah you mentioned that Redvers bullet was particularly rubbish but actually Baden-Powell was not no, but uh, I mean, during the siege of
0: Mafeking, which was quite a leisurely siege, I mean, they never ran out of food, only four westerners were killed by artillery i mean it you know everyone talks about this amazing siege of Mafeking, but you know like Ladysmith, it wasn't quite as bad as people
1: thought and and when the uh, well it's the relief of mafeking isn't it There's well you it was um that they were saved?
0: Well, everyone who turned up thought how well-fed everyone looked. (laughs) It was only the poor Bantu that weren't protected and they had far more casualties. you got the Brits starting to use scouts, you know, starting to understand... Guerrilla warfare, or some of them understanding guerrilla warfare and sending intelligence officers, sending Bantu scouts into Boer lines. But Baden Powell ran some classic ruses. He wrote letters to friends, knowing that they would be intercepted by the Boers, saying that a British relief force was turning up. He built fake observation posts and command posts, put down fake minefields. But I don't think the Boers were ever going to properly try and invade anyway they did make one attempt but on the whole they sat back and sat in their lines and the, just caused trouble yes the boers didn't really want to lose uh, large numbers of men; they couldn't afford to
1: lose. They no, didn't they have... didn't have really the facilities for. A
0: well, they didn't have the numbers. I mean, the numbers. Yeah. You know, by the end of the war, there were twenty-four thousand Boer prisoners sent to Sent Helena, sent to Ceylon and India. You know, scattered far and wide. So they had very few numbers to with which to fight the Brits. They did use tactical deception, the Boers. I mean, they they used to hide in shallow graves and with reeds sticking out to, through which to breathe and it did turn out to be shallow graves because when the brits found this sort of uh, disturbed earth they just stick their bayonets in and hear the muffled screams from down below uh, on other occasions because the boers out on the veldt had so few clothes you know when they attacked a british column and took british uniforms they didn't bother taking the insignia off they they posed as british soldiers and officers and managed to deceive the Brits on, on quite a few occasions.
1: But that r- raises the stakes for the people doing it, because if you're captured doing that, you're not a prisoner of war.
0: Oh, they were shot on sight. I mean, there was a story of one boy getting so drunk that he was found in a farmhouse, still in his Lance's, British Lancers uniform, <laughs> and shot on the spot. Uh, no quarter was given then, because it became such a ruthless war. You know, the British had considered dropping rounds of ammunition, scattering them around the veldt, knowing that the Boers were running out of ammunition and would simply scoop up any loose British ammo. And they were planning, the Brits were planning to sabotage the ammo so it would explode and kill the Boers who were using it. This was considered ungentlemanly and the idea was quashed. But you know, 50 years later, during during the Malayan <laughs> campaign against communist insurgents in Malaya, the Brits were very happy to doctor uh, ammunition and uh, that would blow up in the faces of the communist guerrillas. So uh, I I think two world wars had basically changed the perspective in terms of fighting dirty.
1: So although camouflage had developed um, from the First World War into something more serious than marching around in red tunics, the deception element really stepped up a gear in the second world war where they used uh, the allies in particular used it to outfox the germans in many different and clever ways starting with wooden airfields
0: yes there's always been a story that the germans were building a wooden airfield near amsterdam in late 1940 and the brits simply went and bombed it with wooden bombs but no one has ever really got to the bottom of the story. But it shows that deception is always going to be there. I mean, what really made it step up in the Second World War was Churchill. You, you had this sort of conservative approach within the hierarchs of the military who didn't like the idea of it, didn't get the concept of it. And it was only when it started succeeding in Egypt, in North Africa, that people back here started seeing the possibility. And of course we weren't involved in apart from combined operations, apart from commando raids along the coast of Reich territory. You know, we we weren't involved in any landings at that stage. So it was really in other theatres that deception started to be used started to be developed. And a lot of the deception techniques that the London controlling section, as it was called, came up with for Operation Bodyguard and Fortitude and the the Normandy landings, so many of those techniques, whether it was visual deception or acoustic deception or signals deception, were being used in North Africa, were being trialled out there.
1: And Churchill was always very supportive of deception. I mean, rather like Hitler had a love of technology and fancy weapons, Churchill was really into anything that was sneaky-beaky or commandos, uh, the SOE. All those things appealed to him and his sense of how we were going to win the battle. He loved the idea of corkscrew
0: minds, the idea that people could think laterally. Strategic deception really tickled him. I mean, he thought this could be really useful. So once John Bevan took over the London controlling section, the... the power of the London controlling section, the idea of strategic deception, once it was plugged into Ultra, for example, the Enigma Code Breaking, and into the double cross system uh, run by the 20 Committee, that you started not only being able to deceive the Germans, but you also started getting feedback on how they were being deceived. And this is something that the Germans
1: never managed to do themselves. So you know, the they allies. had small small success the, before the war with their Luftwaffe flying their planes around pretending the Luftwaffe were bigger than it actually was.
0: Yes, but in terms of war deception,
1: they, they never managed, because
0: they never had that feedback. They never had the signals intelligence.
1: Are you uh, saying the Germans think in
0: straight lines? I couldn't possibly say that, Tom. Okay. But, <laughs> but we had double agents like Garbo that were feeding such utter bull back to the Germans, and they swallowed it.
1: But just enough truth in it that it was believable I mean like positions and missions that had actually already taken place so it wasn't complete nonsense otherwise they would have you
0: always have to, to align it with what you're doing in the same way that if you take on a false name as a as an intelligence officer or as an agent overseas you have to make the name close enough to your own that you don't suddenly freak when someone comes up with it. So it, it's, to, it's, to, it's sleight of hand. It's just being close enough to the truth that people will swallow it. And if you look at the sort of conjuring tricks, the sort of magic that people like Jasper Maskeline were doing in North Africa and Operation Bertram in North Africa, I mean, here you had, around the time of the Second Battle of El Alamein, you have this amazing deception campaign. I mean, Maskelyne built, uh, got his engineers to build uh, a a fake port of Alexandria so the Germans would bomb the wrong place. You know, it was a few miles down the road and made from cardboard and had bonfires and explosions going on and things like that, and it completely duped the Germans. Uh, He had searchlights along the Suez Canal to dazzle German bomber pilots and make them misplace the Suez Canal, uh, in the same way that he had glimmer lights put on tanks that could confuse, in a way, camouflage where the tanks were. Um, Operation Bertram, there were 2,000 fake tanks moved around, each one that could be picked up by just a few men and repositioned. You know That sort of deception started being used
1: So we were pretty good at it. But, I mean, you you mentioned a moment ago Committee 20. I mean, that's not such a great code name, is it? Well, that's one
0: of the problems. I think people get too clever by half. And if you have uh, the 20 Committee, uh, XX... Well, it was actually
1: XX Committee, wasn't it? Well, exactly.
0: I mean, talk about double cross. I mean, if that doesn't send a signal... And, you know, quite often you get these sort of... This sort of clumsiness and the belief that the enemy went, but I mean, it always makes me laugh that the KGB called their agent uh, Michael Foote, who became leader of the Labour Party and was being paid incidentally by the KGB. They named him Agent Boot. It's not exactly the most subtle code name of all. Um, and he just was changed one letter. And he was the most awful sour-faced lefty. I can just imagine him being a KGB stooge, frankly.
1: Oh. I miss him in that duffel coat.
0: (laughs) He was just ghastly and never brought to justice, of course. But anyway, you you have to be sort of quite clever in the deception game. And by the time that we were preparing for the Normandy landings, it was on a huge scale, controlled by the London
1: controlling section. Well, they'd had a decent bit of practice with the invasion of North Africa, around the time of El Alamein, when the Americans came over. they the, the combination of the Americans and the British, they really got their act together as a team and produced a very clever deception, which which fed into their plans for D-Day and in a way that they learnt a lot of things about how to combine their efforts.
0: Yes, and you, you realise that it had to be a combined operation. I mean, by the time it got to D-Day, we had acoustic deception going on we had signal deception going on. We had Operation Glimmer by the RAF dropping windows to make it look like a large bomber force heading for the port of Calais. Uh, you had fake um, paratroops being dropped under Operation Titanic uh, and these fake paratroopers known as Ruperts, they, they, they let off firecrackers as they landed. We used them in the Um, operation to invade southern France as well, actually. So, you know, these sort of techniques were being refined and being used all over the place.
1: And not even a mention of any of my (laughs) great-uncles.
0: Oh, bring one up. (laughs) As long as it's not over one. No, with I the can't because
1: pink... if I bring one up, then the the, the other side of the family get get upset that they the other one hasn't been mentioned. As, so. long as, <laughs> as
0: long as I don't have to hear about the one with the pink beret, I don't <laughs> mind <laughs> jumping He's off. He's my favourite. <laughs> <laughs> Uncle Peter. Oh dear. Mm. But, anyway, uh, so, so so you know, and and actually, by the time we landed. The deception campaign was continuing. Obviously, Hitler still thought it was the Pas de Calais. They, 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 they still believed late into June, July, that that it was the Pas de Calais. You know, it it had been so embedded in their
1: in their thinking, in their strategy. Well, they were still confusing and bamboozling them when we were crossing into crossing the Rhine. Yes, the famous Ghost Army,
0: Operation Viersen. It's so close
1: to what Julius Caesar was doing.
0: Uh, 2,000 years before, and it was the idea that two divisions were going to cross the Rhine, far north of where they actually crossed. And they had 600 uh, fake tanks. They had acoustic troops with loudspeakers that gave the impression that the divisions were building a pontoon bridge, that armour was being prepared to cross the Germans moved huge forces to to face them and bombarded the whole area, shelled the whole area relentlessly and, of course, hit absolutely nothing. That's
1: just one corporal with a tape recorder.
0: Yes, (laughs) (laughs) creating a ghost army, just like the US First Army in, in Kent, the fake army led by Patton, Uh, supposedly led by Cap based in Kent and Mm. ready for that dash across the Channel to the Pas de Calais, which never happened. So these sort of operations were extremely important and, and reached their zenith in World War II.
1: So the Second World War ends, we've got a vast amount of experience and talent and suddenly we're into the Cold War.
0: Yes, everything moved really from hot war to cold war. And although that we were involved, Britain was involved, American revolt, involved, the West was involved in myriad counterinsurgencies around the world, it was really in this era of detente and deterrence. It was a way of deceiving the enemy, really, in the espionage world. It was the spying game that became all-important. And deception was key to that. And you know, if you want one small example that the Brits came up with it was an ingenious thing tiny thing and it was just a glaucoma contact lens so if we had to do stay behind operations in the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet bloc you could just get your agent to put in glaucoma contact lenses so they wouldn't be sent to a labor camp they wouldn't be suspected but of course they might end up being shot anyway as
1: uh, excess baggage as
0: excess baggage as Mm. not being useful
1: and there was the sort of semi-comic revelation uh, in the time of Tony Blair in the in the noughties um, when the, the Russians revealed that the Brits had a fake rock in Moscow.
0: Yes, I think that was 2006, and there was that fake rock which the KGB managed to get their paws on and film people walking past and slowing down and pretending to cough or blow their nose. But it was quite a useful technique. It's very difficult either to run agents from the embassy, to run agents by accredited diplomats who are in fact MI6 agents, or to run illegals. I mean, we don't even bother running illegals in Russia because they're going to be mopped up so quickly by counterintelligence. I mean, If you have essentially a totalitarian regime, how do you operate in that environment? and yet here was this rock that allowed uh, agents to squirt information into and for us to retrieve it, but that particular little device was uh, discovered.
1: So what it was squirting like a radio transmitter?
0: Yes, and then recording it in... in
1: A sort of high-speed recorder.
0: Yes, and and the rock was recording it, and it could either be retrieved electronically or the rock could actually be picked up. I think the Russians actually saw someone pick the rock up at once. Probably probably had to change the battery. (laughs) Yes, or or trying to give it a shake. Actually, Mossad at one stage used to call it changing the battery operations when they went into Baghdad to change the batteries on their on their laser designation. Targets, you know, so on it does ho- homing beacons. So yes, you do get changing the battery operations.
1: Well, I mean, the the, the the Russians have always been incredibly able and capable at deception, haven't they? Really, I mean, their their um, their efforts in in Prague in the Prague Spring of nineteen sixty eight bore witness to that.
0: Of course, they they've always specialised in dirty tricks and active measures. We saw that with the Skripals in using Novichok nerve agent in Salisbury. But back in 1968, when the Prague Spring arose, the Soviets sent 30 illegal agents into Czechoslovakia to spread disinformation, to mount kidnaps, assassinations, to plant arms caches that looked as though they came from America. Uh, They basically wanted to show that the liberal upsurge in Czechoslovakia was being promoted, funded, organised by the West. So that's what their illegals went in to
1: do. But in a way, that's not so much the classic deception that we might play. It's, it's a bit like uh, what Hitler did in, in um, Czechoslovakia before the war, when he basically said that uh, the Germans in Czechoslovakia were being badly treated and giving himself an excuse to then go in.
0: Yes, but it's a political deception and it just shows the, the, the grades of it, the the subtlety of deception that goes on within the environment of the Cold War and goes on to the present day.
1: Well, so, yeah, t- let's talk a little bit about controlled access agents or, or in slang terms, dangles.
0: Everyone uses them. The Brits certainly use them. I mean, there are people who are used by MI5 who are held out And so they're literally dangled. They are literally dangled. And one of the reasons is that they know that there are agents out there, there are intelligence officers out there from all sorts of countries who are desperate to send information, desperate to send their intelligence take back to their centres, whether it's Moscow or elsewhere. And so they'll either make it up or they'll scrabble around, they'll look for open sources and copy them and doll them up into something really important. Um, or they'll just swallow whole whatever is fed to them, and this is why intelligence agencies call it foodstuff or chicken feed. And we did it very successfully in the Second World War with the double-cross system. Even today, there are Russians, there are other countries, uh, certainly hostile states, that will... Swallow whatever's fed them. And that's why you basically hold information out. You hold uh, a controlled access or a controlled contact out so that they are approached. And then the foreign country will tap them and we can provide that foreign country w- with whatever nonsense we want to. Uh, it's always been said the reason that the Konkordsky, the Tupolev Tu-144, which was the Russian replica, of the Concorde aircraft. The reason it was so useless was because we fed so much nonsense technical information to the Russians, and they reverse-engineered it. I mean, who knows? I mean, the fact is, Russian aircraft, on the whole, are terrible. I I will never travel on them. The engines are dreadful. And the Tu-144 suffered, I think it suffered about 80 um, terrible sort of mishaps in the air. <laughs> uh, cabin pressure suddenly went off. The engines overheated, and you know the second production aircraft crashed at the Paris Air Show in 1973. But but that was the Russians desperately
1: trying to keep ahead. So a slightly more prosaic story is about the KGB spy who was tempted to a party by MI5.
0: Yes, there's always been this story going around that the party went terribly wrong because everyone at the party was from MI5 and the Russian was getting drunk and drunker and drunker and he suddenly took out a camera and started photographing his new best friends. (laughs) So MI5 didn't quite know what to do but as the Russian staggered back home he was curiously mugged and the camera was stolen.
1: Perhaps he was not. They're pretty good at holding their liquor in Russia. Perhaps he wasn't as drunk as they thought. He thought he might get away with a nice collection of of, of the whole department. Well,
0: he certainly, he certainly lost the camera, so that was the main thing. But deception operations, because reality sort of kicks in, you have to improvise. And when Oleg Gordievsky was smuggled out of Moscow and across the Finnish border in the mid-1980s, There were sniffer dogs at the border, and what happens? The wife of the UK intelligence officer, who was travelling with them, with their baby, uh, managed to change the nappy of the baby on the boot, where the dog was beginning to sniff around, where Gordievsky was hiding. And the dirty nappy fell on the floor and uh, slightly distracted the dog. Perfect. So that's what you need to do. That is what you call deception.
1: I think that's what I'm going to be doing very shortly because my daughter is about to give birth to a baby and I'm sure I'll have first-hand experience very soon. It'll
0: end up with a turban.
1: (laughs) Very good. I don't even know what that means.
0: It just means you put the nappy on the wrong end. (laughs) I'm pretty proficient
1: at these things.
0: (laughs) You're such a new man. I used to be able
1: to change a nappy and roll a cigarette at the same time. (laughs)
0: rather than rolling the nappy and changing the
1: cigarette. Unlike my grandfather, used to throw it out of the porthole of the battleship, but that's another story. (laughs) Before we come to our regular postscript, we should just round off with Camouflage, the third generation. What are your thoughts on that? Well, a bit like Deception... Things have had to become broader,
0: the, the the perception has had to become wider because there's so many elements to it, there's so many aspects to it and now it's not just visual camouflage. You, you know, any force has to disguise itself, uh, protect itself from detection that's thermal acoustic you have blue green lasers for example that can penetrate the water and pick up a submarine several hundred feet down you have synthetic aperture radar that can map a bump in the sea that can see a sub going underneath it so whether it's at sea or in the air the rival of stealth technology you know it's this constant battle to and fro battle between those trying to detect and those trying to avoid detection. And so camouflage and deception are becoming ever more merged.
1: And and in the matter of camouflage, I mean, even with the sort of social media, one of the reasons why Osama bin Laden was eventually found was that there was absolutely no electronic signature coming out of his compound, which in Pakistan was, was very unusual, there was no internet communication or telephones or anything. So by the sheer fact that he had nothing going out, he was visible.
0: Yes, but he might well have been given away by some source in Pakistani intelligence. One never knows. There's this constant bluff going on on where the source is, You know how he was discovered.
1: Yes, but my point is that if you're going to be... I mean, it's like having um, you know a wallet full of information when they just did Operation Me, You've got to have a backstory. You can't just be... Uh, this strangely invisible presence hovering around You, you, you know, you've got to have cover. So you can't suddenly appear on the scene with no social media background. unlike Well, you don't, of course, have much of a social media <laughs> background, but I'm doing my best. <laughs>
0: but, 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 but absence, avoid, as you say, it can back. betray your presence. It's quite interesting. The modern uh, camouflage techniques that refract the light or that absorb the surroundings, the technology involved in blending you into the background has got to be so much more comprehensive now.
1: OK, well... That's it, apart from postscript, and we're going to talk about one of our favourites, Thomas Cochrane, the famous naval officer from the 18th century.
0: Thomas Cochrane, the great sea wolf, as the French called him, he had some classic examples of both camouflage and deception. You know, in 1800, March 1800, there was a Spanish ship bearing down on him, and it was a Spanish ship like the Q-ships, pretending to be a merchantman but actually a warship. And Cochrane got out of that situation by flying a Danish flag and saying that he had plague on board. So that saw off that particular ship and got him out of a very tight spot. A year later, he did something even better and more ambitious when a Spanish frigate, El Gamo, bore down on him and he flew the American flag. The Spanish ship got closer and closer, and Cochrane turned and got so close, the Spanish ship couldn't depress its cannon. And eventually, uh, Cochrane, having fired uh, several broadsides from his 14 guns, well, seven guns per side, um, managed to board it and take this frigate that had 32 guns and a much bigger crew. There is a classic example of deception, false flag operations that have been so useful to naval commanders and pirates throughout the centuries. But Thomas Cochrane was both a brilliant advocate of it
1: and a great practitioner of the art. And still a hero in South America and buried in Westminster Abbey. Fantastic man. Cochrane is a fascinating study, inspiration for the fictional captains Hornblower and Captain Aubrey, and perhaps best summed up in the words of Geoffrey Household, talking about his countrymen, the British... Thus, on the surface, they are so open and yet so naturally and unconsciously secretive about anything which is of real importance to them. These are our thoughts on camouflage and deception. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks, Tom. So it goes. At the beginning of this episode, I gave a quote about war being a continuation of politics by other means. If you can tell us who said this and offer us a counter-quote... We will send the best answer, in our biased opinion, a gift. Replies to talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com. Oh, and please pass on this podcast on to a friend. My name is Tom Ashton. His name is James Jackson. Please subscribe to Bloody Violent History on your app. It really helps others if you tell them about us (laughs) and give us a review. Thank you and good luck i'm
0: disguised as a chair you'll never find me
1: (laughs) (laughs) jamie jamie where are you
0: we still recording yeah oh right shit um <laughs> oh, we always have yeah, one yeah, of these yeah, in yeah. the middle don't we yeah, yeah no, it yeah, all goes yeah. you haven't had your second oh you have yeah, had I your have, second
1: have, biscuit I have, I have <laughs> it, yeah. anyway okay